God for his grace in their lives. And John and Monica, thank you for sharing your story with us. And John, thank you for the marital counsel. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, no, you see God's grace in their story and in their lives. And I just ask you, this, as we start the series, what's your grace story? As you think about your life and you think about perhaps a relationship with Jesus Christ, what is your grace story? If you don't have one, then my prayer for you is that by the end of this series, you will have a grace story. But what is your grace story? Because everybody who has a relationship with Jesus Christ has one, has a first encounter with God's grace, and then God continues to flow through us and in us and change us by his grace, and it's the very thing that flows out of us into other people's lives that God uses to transform people by his grace. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We see grace all throughout the scripture, and we see it in the lives of people that have touched, been touched by Jesus Christ. And sometimes you look at people and you think they have it all together. Like they, they don't need God's grace because we think of grace as a second chance or, or grace as this thing that's for like the really bad folks. And, and you get folks even like our church fathers. I was reading this week about one of our most influential theologians in the Christian movement ever, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was a guy who if you read about him on Facebook or you read on stuff on the internet, you get all these incredible inspiring quotes and you get all this stuff. But a lot of people don't know his grace story. His grace story is an interesting one. He actually grew up in a home where you'd assume he'd become a Christian because his mom was a Christian. But he denied the faith, and he walked away from it and decided to follow Persian philosophies of life and had a lot of problems with sexual sin, had a mistress for about 13 years and shares in some of his confessions, some of his struggles with these things. And, and he was struggling with the sexual issue, struggling with his pursuit of the Persian philosophy, and inside had a restlessness that many of us know. Or this isn't satisfying. There's got to be something more. And so he started to seek, and started to seek through different philosophies, different religions, and came upon the preaching of one of our other church fathers, Father Ambrose, and uh, heard his preaching. It was convinced intellectually that Christianity was true. Have you ever met people before that intellectually they can agree with everything that you say about Christianity, but you feel like they just don't get it? It just hasn't gotten to their heart, and that's where, that's where Augustine was at. His weakness, his problem was his sexual sin. And he couldn't get past that and how he could be accepted by God, how he could experience God's grace. He tells a story of his grace story one day sitting at his house out in the garden. And he's reflecting on life and thinking through some of the big questions that sometimes we think through. And this young boy came by and he was singing. He was singing in Latin, but the English translation of what he was singing was this, take and read. And the song kept saying those two words, take and read, take and read. He took it as a divine command from God that he should go pick up the scriptures and the first verse that he opened it up to, and his eyes caught on the page, that he should read that verse. And so he stood up, and he was in tears because he felt like it was a divine command. And he walks over and finds a copy of the scriptures and opens it up, and he comes to Romans chapter 13, and verse 13 says this. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. God was speaking specifically to Augustine. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Know his grace. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Because he's got something that will quench our greater desires. And Augustine talks about what happened after that moment in his confessions. And you can read it on your own. He says, I read that first sentence. I didn't need to go any further. Because what happened was I was flooded with the confidence of God. And it took away the doubts. And it took away the darkness. That was his first encounter with God's grace. What's yours? What's your grace story? I think about it on my own. My first encounter with God's grace, I was an 18-year-old kid. It was basically a punk. 
arrogant, like sports, wanted to get my own way. Uh, I told the first service, I kind of modeled my life after Ferris Bueller. <laughs> uh, I watched that movie and then thought, oh yeah, if you can get around rules, that's how you should live your life. And, and lived a party lifestyle and tried to get around rules and did whatever I wanted to do. And it was working for me, except God had started planning in my heart, is there more than this? Because it felt empty, it felt meaningless. And as much fun as the parties were, as much fun as the debauchery was, as much fun as that was in the moment, it always left me wanting more. But it wasn't more of that, it was more of something else. And what was it? And I started to ask these questions as God planted them in my heart. I ended up coming and having a relationship with this guy. I was teaching a Bible study in my public high school. It was interesting, he wasn't a pastor. I went to this Bible study and he ended up telling me the story of redemption. The story of redemption in short goes like this, the best you can do is like a pile of dirty rags. It's a pretty depressing beginning. He said, but there's someone that was born. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And he came to this earth, and he allowed himself to be murdered, to take upon our filthy rags, to take upon all the good deeds that we try to do that never quite get there to God, and all the bad stuff that we do, to put it all on the cross. And he died. God died. Who would make up that story? But then he rose again, and he offers life. And he said, do you want that life? And I said, I, I don't know. I don't think I can do that. And a few days later, I was on my knees, 18-year-old punk kid. No one would have guessed I'd be on my knees next to my bed. I'm on my knees next to my bed, and I'm reading this booklet that's got Bible verses in it. And one of the verses is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. And at that moment, God spoke to me. He said, Scott, are you going to waste your life following other philosophies? Are you going to waste your life following other religions? Or are you going to trust my son? Trust my son. And I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior at that moment, admitted my sin, and believed upon him and what he did on the cross and through the resurrection to give me life and experience grace. That's the beginning of my grace story. That's my first experience with grace. What's yours? What's your grace story? And see, what I've learned, though, is that God's grace story doesn't stop with that first taste, with that first encounter of God's grace. See, here we are. We stand in 2012. It's the beginning of the year, and that fun time. Because you've got all these plans of what's going to happen in 2012, right? Like all the marathons you're going to run, and all the weight you're going to lose, all the money you're going to save, and all that stuff. It's going to be a fabulous year, isn't it? But sometimes what happens is you look back, too, at, at the last year and what 2011 was like. And for me, when I look back at 2011, I'm pretty confident it's the worst year of my life. But it was great. And the reason why it was the worst year, it's not because of some tragedy that took place. It wasn't like somebody died that I didn't expect to die. It wasn't because, you know, lost a bunch of money. It wasn't some illness that came. It wasn't a bunch of disappointments. It wasn't any of that. And so it's hard for me to put tangible words on what took place. So let me tell you what happened. There's a spiritual battle that took place in my life. Where I started to work through all this sin from my past and who I am and why do I think that and who, how did I become this type of person when I'm actually this type of person and there's this battle that's happening with me so much so I ended up going to sit down with a counselor just to talk through these moments. And you know what happens every time I dive into one of those moments? I come back to the same place, the cross and the grace of God that washes through and over and abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or imagine into other people's lives because of his grace in our lives. And so today, I talked to you about grace and grace stories, and I'll tell you, I don't have grace figured out. I know it better now than I did last week, but I don't have it figured out. But my fear is that there are many people that don't really get grace. And I don't mean you can't give a definition, like God giving us something we don't deserve. That'd be a definition of grace. I don't mean you can't sing songs, amazing songs, like Amazing Grace. <laughs> I don't mean you can't use the word in a sentence. I mean, you don't really get it. I haven't experienced it haven't owned it. It's not part of your story. 
And so we're going to do this series on God's life-changing grace. Talk about some grace stories. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1 today. And if you've never been in the book of Acts, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. What happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the story of Jesus Christ, his life and ministry on earth up to the point of his death and then his resurrection. And the book of Acts is really a transition in the Bible between the Gospels and what are called the epistles, the letters, you know, Galatians and Ephesians and First Corinthians and Romans and all that stuff. And the book of Acts is planted right there. And what it is, it's the birth seeds of the church. And you know what the church was? Church wasn't like a lot of us know it. It wasn't a building that people went to so they could learn Bible verses. It wasn't a place where you had events. It wasn't a place where you knew no one would swear. It wasn't like this place where it was like kind of safe to be. It wasn't a place of programs and all that stuff. The church was a movement. It was a grace movement built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And the way that it started, it's so interesting that God would do his story. The grace is woven through his story so much. He uses a guy named Peter who blows it big time, and then God gives him a second chance. God's grace. To stand up and preach a message to people who end up realizing, wait, we crucified the Messiah. We killed God. Now what do we do? And Peter tells them, God's grace. God will forgive you. Repent. Turn to him. He'll forgive you. And these people, they get the, the greatest thing that's ever happened in their lives, God's grace. And when you get the greatest thing that's ever happened in your life, what do you do? You, you share it with other people. On that first day, 3,000 people got God's grace and started their grace story. And then they go around and they don't start having events and powwows and just memorizing verses. They learn the scriptures so they can tell them to other people and how the grace flows through that into their lives. And so they start telling their spouse and they tell their kids and they tell their coworkers and they tell their neighbors. Not because there's a program and everybody in our church is going to tell four people this month. No, because it's in their heart and it's transformed their lives. And can you imagine what it's like Then you, you tell your spouse and then they get it? And you tell your kids and they get it? And you tell your brother and he gets it? And now you've got this thing in common, the most incredible thing in your life. But see, not everybody gets it. And the people who don't get it, they're pretty upset about it because grace would mean the death of religion. It means the death of their traditions. It means changing their lives. And a lot of people don't like change. And the number one opponent to this grace movement was a guy named Saul. And we read about him in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, talks about Saul. Meanwhile, Saul, we've already been introduced in chapter 7. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. But meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus is about a week's journey away from Jerusalem where he's at. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, before we were ever called Christians, we were known as the way. We follow the one, Jesus Christ, who says he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way to get to the Father. Whether men or women, it didn't matter. He'd take them, put them in prison, and desire they be executed. He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. This is not normal circumstances. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink. He was fasting. It was a fast of repentance because God had totally transformed his life, and he realized the path he was on was the wrong direction, 
And now God was putting him on a totally different path because he demonstrated his grace to him. And what you see happen here in this passage is that God grabbed a hold of Saul's attention in the midst of his pursuit of something else that he thought was what God wanted. And God grabbed his attention and showed him his life-changing grace. And that's what God does. He grabs our attention to show us his life-changing grace. He has this ability to grab our attention so he can demonstrate to us this grace that will totally change the direction of our lives, that will totally change everything we do and why we do it. Well, first he has to grab our attention. If you think about things in society that grab our attention, there's been a lot of them over this last year, just thinking about 2011. Think about the weddings, from the royal weddings to the Kardashian weddings. There's all kinds of weddings that have happened. It's grabbed people's attention. People have paid attention whether they're watched on TV, read articles about it, whatever it was. It grabs your attention. There are different tragedies that take place. Uh, there's the Gifford story where that politician was shot in the head. Terrible tragedy. There's a story of the earthquake that happened in Japan. It grabs our attention. You see different stories that are kind of the pop stories sometimes. Charlie Sheen, <laughs> he was winning this year, right? And so it grabs our attention. Why do those things grab our attention? Sometimes they grab our attention because we see people that are messed up and they're more messed up than us. It makes us feel good about us, right? Sometimes they grab our attention because we really care about the topic. Sometimes we care about what's happening in our world. Sometimes we know that it'll impact our finances. Sometimes we know that it'll impact our family. Sometimes we have genuine concern for other people. Those things, they grab our attention. And people who write headlines, they know how to grab our attention so then they can get us to see the rest of the story. Advertisers, they know how to grab our attention so that then they can show us their product. They can sell us something. You know what? God knows how to grab our attention. But here's the thing. He's not trying to sell us something. He's trying to give us something freely. And that's the biggest problem for many of us. We don't receive anything freely in this world. So to receive something freely is so difficult. And we think, no, 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 I get it. I understand this grace is free. Yeah, but if you live your life continually trying to pay back that debt, then it wasn't free, was it? Do you truly understand grace? Do you know what it is to receive something freely given to you? It's the gift of God, the grace of God. It's the biggest struggle for so many of us. And Saul, he'd have been the least likely person to get grace. His whole life was built on obeying the law. As for legalistic righteousness, he was the most righteous. As for zeal for his cause, he was the most zealous. Saul was a man. It was a Jewish man that was part of an elite group of Jews known as the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were people that tried to help everyone else not break the law. And then by break the law, I don't mean speeding tickets and stop signs. I mean the law of God, to honor your parents and not have other gods before you, to do all those things. And so he had a righteous cause, right? And he's trying to get people to not break the law. And then these people come and they start talking about God's grace and forgiveness and second chances. And what he, the way he sees it is, then everyone's going to go and break the law. We've got to stop these people. They're against God. The first place that we see Saul is in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. And what happens there, it's the first Christian martyr, the first person of the way. It was one of the leaders of this movement called the way. And they're stoning him to death. And Saul's there giving approval to his death. And what happens is as they're throwing stones at him so that they can kill him, and you can imagine how gruesome of a scene that must have been, he starts to pray out to God, God, receive my spirit. And then he says what his Savior says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, Lord, don't hold this against them. Don't you think that would get Saul's attention? But it doesn't. Because if you have a Bible out or you got it on your iPhone or whatever, you can scroll down a little bit and go to chapter 8. In chapter 8, in verses 1 through 3, you learn more about Saul. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. And that's how one of the ways that God spread the, church, the gospel outside of Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world is this persecution came and broke out against the church. And godly men, they mourned for Stephen's death. But look what happened with Saul. 
But Saul began to destroy the church. It's like it was gas on the fire. It fueled the fire. We've got to exterminate this virus known as Christianity, this virus known as the way. We've got to stop this because it's ruining people's lives. And that's why chapter 9 starts off. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. And the idea that he's breathing out these murderous threats is not simply that he's slandering the church. Okay? Saul's not just talking smack against the Christians. He's not just gossiping, making up stories. The essence of what's being said here by the author, the author of, Luke, or of Acts is Luke. Luke is saying here is this is at the core of his being. This is the very air he breathed. He's breathing out these murderous threats, these slanderous words. And it's not to scare the Christians. He's really going house to house in Jerusalem and arresting these people so that they can be put on trial. And when they're put on trial, he votes to have them executed. He says it later in the book of Acts. And there's situations like Stephen where they just kill him right there on the spot. And he's so passionate about this that he's actually going to go to another. It's not enough just to get rid of all the Christians in Jerusalem. We're going to go find all the Christians that are in Damascus, and we're going to kill them too. Damascus is about a week's journey away. So he goes to the high priest, the guy who has authority, to be able to let you have an authority to go speak in the synagogue and talk to people and be able to rule over their lives. He gets the letters from the high priest so he can go to the synagogues there. And while he's on his journey, what he doesn't realize is that while he's on this passionate pursuit of his life, God's on a pursuit of him. See, God, he's a pursuing God. He's a seeking God, and he's after us. And many of us, we're on pursuits in life of various different things. And, and if the truth be told, some of us would rather not get caught by God because we've got a plan for what we want to accomplish before he gets a hold of our lives. But see, God's relentless in his pursuit of us. Have you ever been chased and not wanted to be caught, whether you're playing tag as a little kid or most extreme example would probably be running from the police? Now, some of you are laughing. A couple of you aren't laughing because you've run from the police. I was talking to one of the members of our church, Archie Massey. He's a police officer, and he started telling me some of his stories of going after people. He started telling me stuff I had no idea happened in our city. You know, on an average day, there's four or five foot chases by the police in our city. I said, Archie, if they run, don't they get in more trouble? He started laughing at me. He goes, they're criminals. They don't care. Yeah, they get in more trouble. And I said, if somebody starts running from you, why don't you just shoot like over their head? You know, at a corner, you know, ricochet it off. There. He goes, you can't just shoot at people. He starts telling me, the, I'm learning the rules in case I ever have to run, right? So I know how this works. And he, he starts telling me the first week on the job, what ended up happening for him is the first week, okay? He's breaking him, breaking him in. He starts on this foot chase after a guy who's just like in the movies, chasing him through his gangbanger, I think it was. And he's chasing him through his backyard, jumping bushes, jumping fences. And the guy trips over a bush and falls, and this pistol comes sliding out. And I'm just picturing it, just like in the movies, right? And you've got to crawl for the pistol. The guy's crawling for the pistol. He jumps on him. And then I said, and then your backup shows up, right? <laughs> he laughs like, no, that's in the movies. And he, you know, cuffs this guy, you know, got to wrestle him down and does this whole, whole deal. He's pursuing. The guy didn't want to get caught. That's why he's running from the police. He told me this one story about a guy who had broken into, I think it was 600 homes. Is that right, Archie? The 600? He had 100 felonies against him. He would break into people's homes, and he would sit in their living room while they were sleeping. He'd eat their food and hang out at their house. I'm like, why would he do that? He goes, he's messed up. And he's like, this is a story. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, we broke into somebody's house one night, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And the person called us. We put this perimeter around the house. And we started to go in on foot to try and find this guy. And he was sneaking around in the woods. and this flashlight. And finally, they got an eye on him. And Archie was the one who started chasing him. He said, I was running parallel with this guy. And we were running. And he was in the woods. And I was up on the street. We were running parallel with this guy. And finally, I just took my pistol. He starts running towards him. And he just rushes this guy. He's got his gun. He can't shoot him, obviously. He told me that story already. But he's got a gun. I was trying to scare him. He runs towards the guy. And the guy starts running back into the woods. They start running through bushes and thickets. They come to this creek. It had been raining for about four days straight. And he said the creek was real high. And the guy goes into the creek. And they can't find him. 
And he said he and his guys, they searched for him for about two hours out there in the rain. It was cold outside, and they couldn't find this guy. They go back to the apartment. They figure he got away. Didn't know if he crossed the other side, if he swam down the creek, what ended up happening. The strange thing was the burglary stopped. And so they weren't sure what happened. They went back to the creek, and what happened was the guy drowned there. And Archie said he was probably two or three feet away from him when he went into the creek. All he had to do was call out for help. But he would rather die than get caught in this pursuit. Saul is a man who would rather die than be caught by Jesus Christ. His passion of his life was to end this movement of Christianity. He's the last person you would ever expect to convert to Christianity. He's on this passionate pursuit. And you know what ended up happening that he didn't realize? Is that God was on a pursuit of him. And what we see through the scriptures is that God's pursuing each one of us. In John chapter 4, he is seeking true worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not people that are just genuine. And not people that just know information about him. He wants people that will put it all together and they really get it. And he's seeking those kind of worshipers. Luke chapter 19, he came to this world. He does whatever it takes to get us. He came to this world to seek and save that which is lost. That's people. That's us. He's coming after us. But see, the people who have the hardest time grasping this are the religious people that do all kinds of things to please God. And you see that in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, they're really upset with Jesus because he hangs around with these people that no one should be hanging around with, prostitutes and tax collectors and all these outcasts. They don't understand grace. And Jesus tells them three analogies. It's interesting. They're all about lost things and all about pursuing them. First analogy is about a coin. And it'd be like saying to you, imagine you lost your wedding ring or imagine you lost a watch your father gave you. Imagine you lost some precious jewel that you had. Would you look for it? And everybody would answer yes to that. And then the next analogy he gives increases in intensity. It's the same idea. There's a shepherd and he loses one of his sheep. He has a hundred sheep, but one of them goes away. And guess what? Would the shepherd go? Of course he'd go. It's even more important than just an object. This is, there's, some relation, there's a living thing here. There's some relationship here. And so he goes after the sheep. He leaves the other 99 to go get the one. And then he gives the most intense analogy. It's of a lost son. Those of you who are parents, can you imagine if you lost one of your children, what you would do to find them? I have four daughters. If I lost one of my daughters, I don't think I could sleep. I would do everything I could, whatever it takes, to find the daughter. And that's the kind of pursuit, the relentless pursuit that God is on after us. And he was on after Paul, Saul here in this passage. While he was on a pursuit of something else. And so many of us, while we're on a pursuit of our reputation, of our success, of climbing some ladder, of filling some inner void, of some relationship that we're looking for, of money, of whatever it is, we're on this pursuit of all these things. Sometimes we do it in God's name, just like Saul did. God's in pursuit of us and our hearts, and he has the ability to grab our attention. And he does it here in this passage with Saul. It's interesting how he does it, too. It says in verse 3, that as he was nearing Damascus, on his journey... Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Now we read in a couple other places Saul's story. In Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, we find out it's about noonday. Noon would be the brightest time of the day. But this light comes that overpowers the brightest time of the day. What's this light like? Well, the Greek word that's used for flash here is actually the word that's used for lightning. So you can imagine how bright lightning is and it flashing. But when lightning comes, it comes and it goes, right? This light, it flashes and it stays. And Saul falls to the ground. It's the glory of God shining around Saul. 
and there's other men that are traveling with him, and they, they see it as well. And at this moment, God has his attention. And you see through the scriptures, God has this ability to get people's attention. Think about Noah. Noah in the book of Genesis, I'm going to flood the whole world. Everyone's going to die, but you. <laughs> How do I follow your instructions here? Do you think he has his attention? There's Moses, the burning bush. There's a bush talking to you, man. Do you see this? Yeah, that'll grab someone's attention. There's Jonah. The dude ends up in a fish, okay? God's trying to get your attention. Pay attention here. Walls come tumbling down with Joshua, part the Red Sea, Pharaoh and all of his plagues. God has an ability to get people's attention. He didn't even talk about the New Testament yet. Jesus walks on water. <laughs> people think they're about to die. Calm down, water. Calm down, wind. People are hungry. He feeds them. He knows how to get our attention. And what's real interesting is if you trace through those stories, you also see God's grace in every one of them. Tragedy or victory, you see God's grace being demonstrated because he grabs our attention to show us, to demonstrate to us his grace. And if you really start cranking down on those stories, what you end up finding out is he uses the things that people are actually most interested in in those situations. The feeding of the 5,000. You got a bunch of hungry people. He doesn't start telling them analogies about forgiveness and redemption and their need for salvation. He feeds them. The Tower of Siloam falls on people, and so he talks to them then about tragedy. Tragedy will come in all of our lives. You see people that are blind, and what does he do? He opens their eyes. Then he gives them spiritual freedom, gives them eyes to see real truth. People that are dead, he raises from the dead to show that he can ultimately raise spiritually dead people to have a relationship with him. And he does these things in these moments of interest. And so let me ask you this. If God were going to get your attention today, what would he use? What are you most interested in? What's your passion? It's your family, your health, your physical abilities, your mental abilities, your money, your job. What would he use? Because what he comes into here is Paul's passion of his life. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? His passion was to persecute the church. He says, Saul, Saul, kind of like Abraham, Abraham. It's divine address. Martha, Martha. Samuel, Samuel. Here we have Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute not my church? Why do you persecute me? See, Christ is so interwoven with his church. He's the head of the church. They are one. When you harm the church, you harm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? But Saul still doesn't know who it is. He's not stupid. He knows this is God. But who? And he asked the question that makes sense. Fell to the ground, he heard him say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul answered, in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Lord? He recognizes it's God. Who are you, Lord? You know, the last person that Saul expects to hear is Jesus. Okay? Saul thinks that Jesus is leading everybody away from God. He actually genuinely believes that he is serving God. Many of us think in our lives that we're serving God when we're ultimately serving ourselves, don't we? What if sometimes we actually go out and we do service for God and we're actually doing it so that other people will like us? What if we're really doing it sometimes so that we get praise or so somebody does something for us? Or what if we're really doing it for some other selfish gain? It's about us. We're not serving God. We do it in God's name, but we're serving ourselves. Or what if we do it to alleviate some guilt from past sin? We're doing it. That's about us. It's all about us. See, Saul, he believed in his own mind that he was doing it for God because he had convinced himself. See, we convince other people. If anybody convince other people, it's Saul. I mean, the dude's smart. He's been to the best Greek schools. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's got Jewish lineage, and he's got the Greek training. The Greeks were the best at training people. 
He can speak multiple languages and teach. He's intimidatingly intelligent. He's very passionate. And he faked himself out. Because he convinced himself he was doing what God wanted. And the whole time God's been pursuing him. And now God's going to get his attention. He's going to get his attention with the thing he's most passionate about. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What do you think went through Saul's mind at that moment? Jesus? Really? I mean, Jesus is dead in his mind. But now he's having an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Jesus? Do you think Saul for a moment started to flash back maybe to that moment in Acts chapter 7 when he was giving approval to Stephen being stoned? And Stephen says the same words that his Lord said on the cross? Don't hold this against him. A guy who knew grace. Stephen knew grace. Do you think maybe in that moment, you can read this on your own, that he went back to Acts chapter 5 when his mentor, the guy he trusts the most, is the most well-known rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. He stood before the Sanhedrin one time, and he wasn't necessarily a follower of Jesus, but the Sanhedrin wanted to kill disciples of Jesus. And he said to the Sanhedrin this, listen, if what they're doing is of man, it'll fail. Other people have tried this stuff, and it's failed. But if this is, if this is from God, no one can stop it. Don't fight against God. Do you think at this moment that Saul realized that he was actually fighting against God in his life as much as he believed and he was sincere and he was genuine and he knew Bible verses? Do you think that he realized that with all that he'd actually convinced himself? But the truth was he didn't understand God's grace. And at this moment, God grabs his attention and he demonstrates his grace. If God wanted to grab your attention, what would he do? Have you seen his grace? What is your grace story? Because when God grabs your attention and he shows you his grace, you know what happens? You're changed. And he leaves you with one life-changing question. And so that's what God does with his grace. He leaves us with one life-changing question. And that's what happens with Saul. Total transformation we see in this guy. First of all, just physically. He's this bold, brash leader who's leading the crusade to go and kill the Christians. And then look what happens in the passage. Jesus tells them, now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. You're not leading, you will follow. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. No kidding, this is different. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. See, this was the guy that was going to point out everybody's problem and tell them how to fix their problem. Now he's blind. Totally different. He opened his eyes, he can see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. This is the guy that was leading here. Now he's helpless, he's humbled, he's following. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. He's fasting. And this kind of fast would be a fast of repentance. It's acknowledging that he was wrong. And Saul was the one trying to tell everybody how all these other people were wrong. He's totally transformed. And then you go and you read through the scriptures and sometimes hindsight shows us even more. And what you see when you read through the scriptures is he continually talks about how he was changed, how he was transformed. There's a total contrast in this man. In Philippians chapter 3, it's a great part of his testimony. Verses 1 through 6, he talks about who he was, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous, from the tribe of Benjamin, all the best lineage, all the best, all, everything, best schooling. He was surpassing everybody else in, in his accomplishments as a Jew, but it's all a waste in comparison with the desire to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. And in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, he says this, not that I've obtained all this stuff of really knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, but I want to take hold of it, the NIV says. Not that I've obtained perfection, but 
I want to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. The King James says this, shows the pursuit that God is on. Not that I've apprehended it, but it'll apprehend, arrest me. I've been arrested by the grace of God. And then he shares it in other places. He shares it in Philippians, or in Galatians as well. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13, he tells a story. He says this in verse 13 of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Next verse, for you have heard my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth, and notice that, not set me apart from the moment I was on the Damascus Road, he set me apart from birth. So even in all of his sin, God's going to use that and redeem that. Even in all his mess and all the things that he said so arrogantly and so boldly about how wrong everyone else was, God's going to use that. Because you know what happens with this guy, Saul? He ends up becoming renamed Paul, the guy that writes the majority of the New Testament. And you know what he says? He was the worst sinner ever. And do you know why he was saved? God sa- he says, the reason why God saved me is so that you would know that God can save anybody. It doesn't matter how far and how hard you think someone is, a relative, yourself, it doesn't matter. God can grab your attention and show you his grace. And look at what he says. He set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. And he was pleased to use me on a different mission, to set me in a different direction, to reveal his son in me, the way that he's changed me, not just to talk about this, the way he's changed me, so that I might proclaim him and preach him to, actually, the Gentiles, and he's a Jew. It's God's grace. It's a grace story. Total contrast in this man. And what we don't see in Acts chapter 9 that we see in Acts chapter 22, because each one of these accounts gives a little bit different details, is that when he has this grace encounter, this divine experience, he asks a question. And the question is this, what shall I do, Lord? It's a question that guided the rest of his life. Now you've got my attention, now what shall I do? It's a simple question, but it's a life-changing question. Do you ever ask this question? Because I'll tell you, a lot of times, this is a question that's kind of assumed But we don't ever really ask this question, do we? God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do in these next moments? What do you want me to do with this information I'm being given right now? What do you want me to do the rest of my life? What do you want me to do for the person that's sitting next to me today? What do you want me to do, God? What shall I do, Lord? Do we ask that question? And if you do ask that question, let me ask you this. What if he told you the answer? Could you do it? What if God really did reveal his will to you? All of it. For the rest of your life, up until the day you die, you know the day that you're going to die. And you know other people that are going to die in your life. And you know all the bad stuff that's going to happen. And you know all the good stuff that's going to happen. All the financial things that will take place. All the relationships that will happen. And you know all the losses that will take place. You knew the whole thing. Could you obey through it? Could you handle that? Some of you know a friend of mine. His name is Riley Rost. Riley was an intern at our church for about two years. He's the kind of guy... Uh, that when you meet him, you think, this guy was made to be a missionary. We recently commissioned him to go on the mission field to a place that we couldn't tell you where the place was. It's totally top secret, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> like, no matter how cool the place was, not telling you makes it even more cool, in my mind. And you meet this guy, and you think, he's like made to go to places that are dangerous, and the culture's different, and just kind of adapt to all that, and be able to share Jesus with people. And he's got this purity about him when you meet him, and you just think that he's like the perfect person to be a missionary. But how do you end up like that is my question because no one's just born this way. And so Riley and I went to lunch one time 
And we were talking through some of that. I said, tell me some of your story. How'd you end up desiring to be someone who goes to dangerous places and tells people about Jesus? Because everybody doesn't do that. What happened with you? So tell me a story. Pretty typical Christian kid story. You know, grew up in church, learned Bible verses, trusted Jesus, all that stuff. Went away to college, went to a college, got a degree. Can't remember the exact title of it, a business type degree. And he planned on going out, making a bunch of money, being a good Christian guy. So it wasn't living like this radical, kill a bunch of Christians' lives or anything like that. And he said right after he graduated from college, he went to this conference. I think it was a passion conference or catalyst conference or something like that. And the speaker was speaking about God's will. And the speaker was being candid, and he said, as he was preaching, he said, if I knew all of God's will, I don't think I could handle it. I don't think I'd be able to do all of God's will if I knew it. It was Francis Chan. Some of you know who he is. He's, he's up there. He's being very transparent. He said, if I knew the day I was going to die or when my wife was going to die, if I knew all that stuff, I wouldn't know what to do. Just give me each day at a time. Could you handle all of it? He challenged the audience. And Riley said, as he sat there, he thought, yeah, I could handle that. If God told me what to do, I'd do it. And I laughed at him when he told me that, when he was telling the story. We were sitting at lunch together. But he's got this purity about him right now. He was dead serious. He looked at me like, mm, uh, I, I could do it. And then he told me what happened next. What happened at this conference next was this woman came up, and some of you may remember some of her story. Her name's escaping me right now, but um, she was in Afghanistan, arrested by the Al-Qaeda right around the time of 9-11 and uh, out of a church in Waco. And what happened was um, she got out of this imprisonment but then desired to go back and do missions work in Iraq. And so she stood up, and she started sharing this testimony with all these college kids at this passion conference or whatever it was. And she said, we need some people that are not college students that have just graduated from college. Riley had just graduated two weeks before. And starts to describe basically exactly Riley. <laughs> and then they go to this time of prayer, and Riley says, God spoke to me and said, okay, Riley, you said you can do it. I want you to go to Iraq for a year. Will you go? And he said, if I didn't do it, I'd have been the biggest hypocrite. He said, it wasn't anything special about me. It wasn't any of that kind of stuff. But God said, what to do? I have to do it. I said, I'd do whatever he said to do. And this guy lives his life saying, God, what do you want me to do? And, and he goes to Iraq for a year. And he thought he'd just give a year of his life. Then he'd come back and go into business, be a good Christian guy, and make a bunch of money, and you know, raise his kids. And, but then while he was there, he ended up learning, I was made to do this. So he comes back to the States and spends a couple years of training and asking God through the whole process. He doesn't go back to Iraq. He goes to another place. God told him another place. If he doesn't obey... And what a hypocrite. That's Riley's story. What's your story? Do you even ask God that question? What shall I do, Lord? What does God want you to do? What if he tells you? Can you handle the answer? See, Saul's story is that he's doing his own thing. He's going in his own direction. And then God grabs a hold of his attention, demonstrates his grace, totally transforms him. He's a new man. Old is gone, new has come. But he doesn't go on and just continue to live his direction. Now, what shall I do, Lord? See, because when God pours out his grace in our lives, then we have a question to ask. And that question is simple, but it's life-changing. What do you want me to do? And maybe he doesn't show you the next 20 or 30 or 50 years. What do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do with these people that I'm about to come into contact with when we dismiss the service? What do you want me to do as I go home for lunch? What do you want me to do with my life? What if he answers? See, Saul's story is, he goes on, he becomes the single, next to Jesus Christ, the single greatest influence in human history. And he keeps asking himself this question. You want me to go to Macedonia? You want me to go to Rome? I'd, lo I'd love to go to Rome. You want me to go here? What do you want me to do? And I'll do whatever you want. You know why? Because I'm the chief of sinners. You would save me? People need to know about this stuff. And he continues to spread this virus known as the church. It's not just a club. It's a movement. That's his story. What's yours? What's your grace story? What we're going to do today is a little different. Uh, instead of uh, 
having you know some information about what's happening here. If you look at your worship program, you'll notice there's a blank spot on it. And what we did today is we intentionally didn't put any announcements there because rather than telling you stuff, we want you to tell us something. Tell us your grace story. So what we're going to do right now is the worship team is going to come up here. I'm going to play some music. I'm going to give you a few moments just to think through what is God's grace in your life? When was your first grace encounter with God? And then how is this grace working in your life now? What is your grace story? I'm going to ask you, each one of you should have a worship program in your cup holder. Just take that worship program and, and answer. What's your grace story? And share it with us. And after the service, there'll be some baskets. There'll be a basket at the table over here. If you're in Theater 14, there's a basket as you go out there. And if you miss that, I'm a basket out in the lobby as well. And express what is your grace story. Just a time of worship to the Lord. You can draw a picture. If you want to draw a picture, you can do bullet points. You can write a paragraph. You can do little sentences. Whatever you want to do to share your grace story. What is your story? How has God encountered you by his grace, grabbed your attention, then demonstrated his grace? And how's his grace working in your life now? I'll give you a few moments to just fill that out and reflect. <laughs>